So we're learning, it's on page 43 in the uh, English, the uh, Varmalchus. We're learning Parshas Lech Lecha, the Rebbe's speech from 5752, on the third Parsha in the entire Torah. Genesis, as we know, starts off positively and ends on a sour note. Parshas Noyach starts off with the destruction of the world, negative, but ends with the birth of Abraham. This week's Parsha is a happy Parsha. We live each day in, day out with Abraham and Sarah, Avraham and Sarah, the first two Jews. And we hear about uh, Avraham being told to go out from the land where he was born and to travel to the land which God will show him, which is the land of Israel, obviously. So this week's Parsha is very tied in with Israel. Very, very Jewish Parsha. It's almost like the first Parsha of the, we learned last two weeks ago, Genesis. We learned about the importance of why God begins the world with, in the beginning. Shouldn't he begin with the first commandment or the first mitzvah of the Jewish people? But rather he begins in the beginning because he says, it's my world and I can give it to who I want. And I choose to give the Jewish people Israel as an eternal covenant. So this week's Parsha, we hear about the eternal covenant with Abraham and his descendants in perpetuity, and God giving them the Holy Land of Israel. So it's uh, not by coincidence, everything happens by divine purpose. I just came from um, a speech by the chief rabbi of Israel at the Holocaust Center in uh, Glen Cove in Long Island, the Holocaust Center of Long Island. And uh, the chief rabbi of Israel was visiting, is visiting America, and he's on tour of Jewish institutions right now. So uh, Rabbi David Lau, who um, famously, his father was one of the very famous, sort of say, Holocaust survivor. And now he's the chief rabbi of Israel. So it shows us the uh, connection with this week's Parsha, with the chief rabbi of Israel in our midst. And we have Abraham getting Israel in this week's Parsha. Also, we just had Israeli elections. So uh, we hope that the new government is a positive government. Thank God there's no more elections. They've had five elections in six years. And we have a winner. We have a winner, winner. <laughs> Finally, after uh, five rounds of elections, we have uh, Bibi Netanyahu has won on the right side. Yeah, officially, he's the winner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been. Uh, it's you know, anytime you have government turnover like that, it's very unhealthy for the people, even no matter what side. You know, it's so it's so, like very tumultuous. There's so many different coalitions, and they all ended after five months. Right, right, exactly, and the. the it's very interesting you say that, Noah. I saw a video this week. I was watching it because it came up, Israeli elections. The Rebbe said the government of Israel, number one, should be, a, according to the Code of Jewish Law, a Torah government. But the second thing the Rebbe used the word narrow government, which is very interesting because in Israel it's very hard to have a narrow government, not to bore you with the... But Israel is much more democratic than almost any nation on yeah. earth. Because their democracy That's can fold, but it's, it's a blessing much. and it's the curse. Yeah, it's, a little too much. it's a little too much, but it's a little. It's beautiful because you have to have a broad coalition on some level. So the Rebbe had a narrow coalition, and this government right now is a very narrow coalition, which is a positive thing because now you can make decisions that are truly for the betterment, uh, hopefully, of of Israel. So it's but a I very good point. That, that, that with, with the government they have now. They took away a lot, a lot of stores and shops were open on Shabbat. Right. They so the new government... A lot of terrible things. They were right. taking away a lot of the holidays. Correct. They were not observant to, to the Jewish holiday. It was... They didn't... That's what they were doing. Right. It was... It was, it's it was a, a terrible thing. They were taking Israel away. Yeah. What it, what it stands for. Exactly. They can't do that. Right. So you now, see what happened right away. They didn't let it happen right away. And you see, the, the, it's amazing. You know how many people turned out for an election? How many think people turned out for election? Oh, so many. 70% yeah, of the population. Can you imagine 70% of a population turning out for election? That's a huge number. In America, we're like 50, maybe. Like, I don't even know. 40-something? 70%. So it shows us something very positive. It's a powerful message. And it's in this week's Parsha. And I just got to meet the chief rabbi of Israel. I've never done that before. It was a, it was a thrill. He spoke beautifully. And um, very poignant uh, message uh, for us. And this week's Parsha, the Rebbe talks about it. The most recent Sikh we have from the Rebbe from 1991 is a journey of Abraham to the land of Israel. And Lechecha is like, almost like the most Jewish Parsha. It's like literally so Jewish. Because in the beginning, you have Abraham, the first Jew. He gets a command from God. God speaks to him. And he says, go from the land where you grew up and go to the land I'm going to show you. 
go to Israel. And so we hear about Avram's journey, the whole Parsha. The whole name of the Parsha is Lech Lecha, which literally means for you to go out. You should go out. And we hear about his going out. It's all about his travels, his, his traversing of the land, trials and tribulations on the way there. And God says, I will give your descendants this land in perpetuity. It's yours forever. The land of Israel is yours now. I will give it to you and your descendants forever and ever for all eternity. And then he makes a covenant with him again, saying on the day that I this, made this covenant with you again. It's called bris bain habasarim. Bris, you know the word covenant. Bris doesn't mean just circumcision. Bris means a covenant. A covenant. He makes a covenant with him. And he says, this is now your land in perpetuity forever. And to your descendants, I give the land. Meaning to say, it's not just because you're a child of Abraham and Sarah, you get the land. God also gave it to you. He says, I'm giving it to your descendants. Not just like I'm giving it to you one time. And then now saying, I'm giving it to you too. Every Jewish person throughout history has an eternal inheritance of the land of Israel. And that's why, you know, we're so hyper-focused nowadays, not giving up one inch, one iota of the Holy Land of Israel. It's very important to, like, re-remember constantly that we should have this voice of, of what's called in Hebrew, Shlemos Haaretz, the perfection of the land, that we can't compensate the land because it, comp- it, it compromises, God forbid, the safety of the Jewish people. And the Rebbe poignantly pointed out, it also compromises the safety of the Arab people. It compromises everybody's safety. So not giving up one iota of the land. And in fact, God says to Abraham, next week, well, it's the end of this week's Parsha, into next week's Parsha, that he gives him the bris, the circumcision also. And he says, it's carved into your flesh. And so it's amazing because after he gets there, what does God say to him? There's a famine in the land. You have to go out. He gets to Israel, acquires it, traverses it north, east, south, west, and then there's a famine. He's immediately tested right off the bat with a famine in the land. So he has to leave. That's another part of the Parsha. But it's an amazing thing because the Rebbe points to this week's Parsha as the beginning of the giving of the Torah. Wait a minute. This week's Parsha is a thousand years before the Torah is given. But really it says that the covenant that was given to Abraham when he was given the land of Israel and given it to all his descendants began the giving of the Torah itself. This was like the seminal point, the, the first contact almost between God and humanity, or more specifically God and the Jewish people, that's saying, I'm going to give the land which I show you. It gives us a clarity of understanding what's the purpose of life, what's the meaning of what we do as Jewish people. We understand that Abraham at the time he was given the covenant was 75 years old. He was not a young man, 75 years old already. 75 year old man, uprooted for the place of his birth, married already, go to Israel. He does not have children yet. Remember, that's gonna be next week's Parsha. That's gonna be in his 90s then. But we read about Abraham in this week's Parsha, the 75 year old man getting ready to accept a whole new way of life, a whole new like trajectory of like of a human being that like there's never been on the face of the earth before, an active monotheist, a person who is not just a believer, is not just like a listener, kind of like Noah was. Noah listened. He did what he was supposed to do, and he did it well, and he, you know, became the, the progenitor of the human race. But Abraham is a protagonist. Avraham, his unique thing is, he's not only a believer in one God, I believe, in conception or in theory, but in actuality, he lived his life, every moment of his life, and this is what we try to aspire to, in connection to one God, in connection to one Hashem. So when we have that seminal point of understanding what Avraham's whole MO is, his whole MO is one God. I live with one God, Every moment, every second, I don't move left or right. One God is my whole MO. We understand now the perspective of Torah. We understand a Torah perspective in the world. Abraham is, under, is, is undertaking for us that service of Hashem to the, a, a singularity, a oneness. 
The Torah is not, again, yet given for a long time, for a thousand years approximately. But we know that the Torah is an eternal guide in all times and all places. So even Avraham, who was before the Torah was given, it says that he began what's called a Merkava. A Merkava literally is a chariot. That it says that the forefathers and the foremothers were like a chariot to God. What does it mean they were a chariot to God? It means that God was driving and they were the chariot. That when a driver drives a car, he or she is in control of that car. It doesn't go left or right without the driver turning the wheel, stepping on the gas, stepping on the brake, doing whatever it is to move that car. If the driver gets out of the car, turns it off, the car doesn't do anything. But the minute a driver gets behind it, it's full channeling the whim and will of the driver. So too our forefathers and foremothers. They were literally like a chariot to God, a conduit, a full conduit to everything Hashem had. Almost innately. Almost like a, like a natural, but it's not natural, it's, a, it's beyond nature. An, an, an innate way of serving Hashem this way. And it's very powerful to understand that as Jewish people, we can ask a question that's famously asked, how can my deeds approach that level? How can I approach the level of Avraham and Sarah and eventually Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel? How can I do that? They're, they're a conduit to Hashem. God drove them. I have my own blockages, issues, things that I'm holding back, things that I'm not letting, really like letting God into that corner of my universe. How do I do that? So it says you're a child of these people. You carry with you that power. You carry with you that power. Just as it's innate in them, it's innate in you. Can it be expressed differently through you? Absolutely. God doesn't want you to be a, a robot or like an emulator. God wants you to be an innovator. So your own becoming a chariot to Hashem is your own. It's unique to you. It's unique to the individual. So when we read about in this week's Parsha, day in, day out, Abraham's life, we hear about his trials, his tribulations, everything he goes through. And every year we read this Parsha, every year we're renewing a deeper understanding and a deeper connection to Abraham's life throughout every set of onset of what he's gone through. Every moment, everything he's gone through, we understand in a deeper way. And now that this, that we're after the Torah has been given, the Torah was given 3,334 years ago, we can understand even deeper Abraham's behavior, right? It's like if you have the entire timeline set out before you, you have Abraham, the first Jew, an active monotheist, and then you have the Torah being given, and then you have us, we're so far down the line, we have full perspective of a, of, a, of a holistic understanding of what God wants from a Jew. We have the first Jew, all the way through the Torah, and now millennia of history, that we can draw upon for our own experiences. It's a very powerful thing. So, just like we look at it, it says that every day the Torah should be new in our eyes. Like it's as if it's given today, as if we got the gift today. That's how we should, we're supposed to relate to Torah, present tense. And even more so, we look at it present tense as something that brings to bear on our modern lives. Not something that just happened to Abraham thousands of years ago. Not just a document that was given to a bunch of uh, Jews in the desert, but rather to us, to me, to me, the individual. Abraham was an individual. It says specifically, God says about Abraham, I only have one Abraham. There's never another Abraham. It says, Echad, there's only one Abraham. God, Abraham says there's only one God. God says there's only one Abraham. But each one of us is also one. We also have that singularity. We also have that individuality. But it's all tied to being a descendant of Abraham and Sarah and, all, and living with them day in, day out. So it begs an interesting question. If we're learning about Abraham as a preparation to the giving of the Torah, as a seminal moment, why are we even going back there? Why are we even going back there? Why don't we just learn Torah and onward? I don't need to learn the preparations. I don't need to learn the backstory necessarily. What does that come to teach me? If I've already gotten the gift and I'm re-getting that gift every day and day out, it begs the question, what can I derive 
once again learning this week's parsha. Once again, what can I derive that's new, that's unique? If you're saying to me, Avraham's whole goal was an active monotheist, okay, great. My great-grandmother was also an active monotheist. <laughs> what's, the, what's the newness of this? How do we approach it? Do you understand the tension in that question? Meaning to say the tension is, is that I don't need to learn the, the, the preparation. I just need to know the Torah has been given. The entire divine blueprint has been given. Heaven and earth have kissed. I've gotten the Torah. So what do we derive from Abraham? So it's an amazing thing that it says, we're on page uh, 45 here. Each day there's a more elevated and innovative giving of the Torah, demanding a more truthful forward movement of Lech Lecha today and this year than previously. So meaning to say, before the Torah was given, people were genuinely lacking in their connection to God. But now that the Torah has been given, and it's given each day and each year, and we reread the Parshas each year, there's got to be something more innovative that we're learning that we've never learned before. It says even that when Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people, He gave us the dew from heaven that brings back the dead from previously. It brings back the dead. It re-enlivens the dead. I'll tell the uh, story now. I'm using this as a segue <laughs> for the story I heard from the chief rabbi of Israel today. His father was a Holocaust survivor. He was eight years old in Buchenwald concentration camp. And after the war and after it was liberated, they were in a displaced persons camp. And there was a lot of children without parents, clearly. A lot, a lot of children. And future Rabbi Lau, as an eight-year-old boy, was with his children, a core of children in the children's area of the camp. There was a woman, her name was Rachel, I'm going to forget her last name, he said it, Rachel, I think he said Levine, but I could be wrong about that. And Rachel used to watch after their needs. She would literally like get everything together, the food, the bed, the mattresses, the, the sheets, everything they needed for like life to try and be as normal as humanly possible for these kids who had just witnessed hell on earth. And her job was to basically get the money together. So she would have to go to like this distribution center and this fund to get monies, to buy this, to buy that, to buy everything after in war-torn Europe. And one time there was um, dignitaries who wanted to come and see the camp. And there was a dignitary from France. And I believe there was a dignitary from, I forget where the other country he said. It was Belgium or somewhere like that, another country. And the dignitaries wanted to tour the camp to see the survivors and speak to them and quote unquote, raise their morale. And when Rachel presented this to the children, they said, we don't want them here. Where have they been for the last two years? Where have they been? They didn't help us then. We don't want them now. We're going to pose for a picture with them. Get them out. So Rachel had this dilemma. What does she do? She needs the dignitaries to come because she needs to raise money. It's for their best interests. But what does she do? So she said to the children, they're going to come, but you don't have to interface with them. You don't have to cater to their shtick, their politician's shtick, put it that way. And the kids agreed, the children agreed. You know, the kids weren't all eight years old. There was teenagers, younger, older, all different ages. And they said, okay, fine. But she said, you don't have to interface with them. And they said, we're not gonna like speak to them. We're not gonna do anything. And they said, she said, do a picture. So there's a picture Rabbi Lau has on his wall in his house going up. And there's these dignitaries at this podium, standing up in this DP camp. And there is like hundreds of children around them. And all the children are looking down. They will not look up at the camera. Almost like a silent protest, but I think it's deeper. 
They didn't want to look up. They were all looking down. We all see the tops of their heads facing the camera. You see these dignitaries lined up. And there's a picture of this. And Rabbi Lau, the, his father, eight years old, remembers that each dignitary spoke and all the kids looked down the whole time, didn't acknowledge, didn't look up. And after each dignitary spoke, this one from France, this one from the other country, this one from wherever, trying to like raise their spirits or something, a Jew from America stood up and he spoke. And he was a member of like a Jewish organization or something. And he stood up and it was silent. And he just said two words. And he said it twice. Taere kinder. And he almost started crying. And he said, Taere kinder. You know what it means? There's no words for Taere kinder. Taere kinder, literally translated, is precious children. I was going to say children. Precious children. Kinder, kinder. Precious. Taere. This Taere is beyond precious. Taira is my heart is like you and you're my heart. That's a tire. Like Taira is the most precious, precious, sweetest of the sweet. And so he said and he started crying. And the children slowly started to look up. And all they did was cry. And you have hundreds of kids just crying. And the man stood there and let them cry. And they just cried together. And they just cried and cried and cried their eyes out. And eventually, when the crying stopped after a while, I think 20 minutes or so, a while, an 18-year-old boy stood up, who was kind of like the older, and he stood up, and he says, where were you for us then? Where were you? I have a, I have, he said, like, he protests, like, I have a problem with you, I, and he, like, let them have it. And he says, where were you? What'd you do? Now you're here for us. And he's like, what you've done to us is horrible. What you've like abdicated for us. What you abdicated, you left us. But I have one thing to thank you for. And I'm glad you came. He said, just now, I cried for the first time. When I was starving in the camp, I didn't cry. When I was whipped for stealing a tomato, this is the speech, he remembers the speech. I was whipped for stealing a tomato to eat, I didn't cry. When my parents were killed, and I found out they died, I didn't cry. And I didn't know if I'd ever cry. And he says, today was the first time I cried. And I didn't know if I could ever cry again. And this that I cried means to say that maybe in the future I'll be able to smile. I'm finally a human being. I have some semblance of dignity restored to me, the fact that I can have tears come out of my eyes and I could cry. And this means that eventually, hopefully, I'll be able to smile. And he quotes, and he says, this 18-year-old boy says, when I was in Cheder, when I was in Jewish school growing up, they taught us the famous prophecy of Yechezkel, Ezekiel. It says in the Torah. And I saw this with my own eyes in the Holocaust. I saw the prophecy of Ezekiel. What was the prophecy? A valley of bones, of dead bodies, decaying corpses, dry bones, in a valley, piled one on top of the other, and I always wondered during the Holocaust, what is this prophecy? Because the end of the prophecy is <laughs> that Yechezkel, the prophet, sees them come back to life. Sees these people, the, the, the valley of bones, everyone has the resurrection of the dead. He sees a resurrection. And I always wondered what that would be like. I never knew. And now at least I have a taste of it, he says. Because before I felt dead, and this that I was finally able to cry means that I'm back alive a little bit. 
And this that I'm back alive reminds me that I have a holy land. And I don't belong in these lands here. I don't belong here. I belong in Israel. I was told this is the land that when Mashiach comes, there'll be the resurrection of the dead in Israel. Mashiach will come, reunite all the Jews in Israel. So this that I have a land called Israel, this is where I want to go. This is 1945. There's no state of Israel. There's no Medinat of Israel. There's no country Israel, quote-unquote. It's a British mandate. And his boy said, I'm going to Israel. Rabbi Lau, the father of the chief rabbi now, who was eight years old, heard this speech and he kept it in his brain. He says, I'm a Jew. I should go to Israel. When I'm old enough, when I'm free enough, when I'm whatever it takes to get there, I'm go- that's where I'm going. And he says, the Rabbi Lau, when he grew up, he had choices to become a rabbi in Europe, in America, in Australia, wherever, England. But he said, I'm going to Israel. Israel's my place of where I belong. Israel's my place. He found this boy who was 18, who was 10 years older than him later. He found them as adults. His name was Aaron. And he found him, and he was a nurse in Shari Sedek Hospital in Israel. Oh. Shari Sedek, famous hospital in Israel. And he was a nurse there. And he said to him, when they reunited, he says, your speech brought me here. And his father became the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And he says, your, your speech to these politicians, these dignitaries, you brought me here. Because it etched in my brain, in my heart, the love of Israel. And it reminded me of what I was as a Jew. And this brought me back to Israel. So this week's Parsha is all about the same exact motivations. The same exact motivations. A place that is filled with idolatry where Abraham came from. A place where Abraham himself, people don't talk about this enough, was thrown into a fire by an idolater. Nimrod, the, who was the king of the civilized world at that time, threw Abraham into a fire for believing in one God. Sound familiar? Same exact narrative as the Holocaust. Abraham miraculously was saved, as was Rabbi Lau was miraculously saved, and many survivors are miraculously saved. But what does it teach? Abraham went, says, I've got to find a place, of my, a place where my people belong. It's not here. God said, I'm out. Rabbi Lau, going from uh, the Holocaust, concentration of eight years old, to becoming the chief rabbi of Israel, having a son becoming a chief rabbi of Israel now, and saying this 18-year-old boy's speech made this unbelievable thing. And here you have in this week's Sicha, right here on page 45, the same exact prophecy. The prophecy that this boy, this 18-year-old boy, talked about. You see in the paragraph, it says, The dew of the Torah. The first of the ten utterances, their souls flew from them, indicating they completed their service of God. But by the dew of revival of the Torah, the soul upon its return was given a new, more lofty shlichus, job to do, which is where they were revived as a soul within the body. And it says, This was performed by the dew, which in the future will revive the dead. The dew of a new depth of Torah in the future. A greater depth. The theme of moving forward constantly. Whether it's, God forbid, from a concentration camp, or from a fire, or from any place, is not only a preparation, it's a movement in and of itself. As Jews, we celebrate the process. We don't celebrate the outcome and the goal. I asked my personal rabbi recently, I said, is Judaism a goal-oriented religion? I thought he'd say, of course. He says, that's the thing about it. As Jews, we embrace the process. In Western academia, you know, you get a 95 on the test, you forget the material, you put the 95 on your report card, goes to the college, you go to college, you get another 95, it goes on your transcript, and you get graduate with a three point, whatever it is, eight, and that goes on your transcript, and you go show that to your employer, and that's what it is. Does it require any retention? Not necessarily. I'm sure most of us here have forgotten the second language we learned in elementary school to the most, for the most part. 
and we're not con- at least conversant in it. But the fact is that that is outcome-based reality. Judaism says the process is the main thing. Embracing the process. Sounds cliche these days, but it's really true. That's Judaism 101. This week's Parsha is all process. Avraham does not have a child yet. Avraham goes to a land and then has to leave the land because of literally environmental changes before global warming. (laughs) There was a famine in Israel. He couldn't write any tweets or protest anybody or do anything. He just left. What a test that is. Everything is about the process. Oh, yes, it began the process of receiving the ultimate gifts from divine on high giving of the Torah. But yet, the process is what we live with this entire week. It teaches us something personal in our own lives. In our own lives, we're always looking for that brass ring. We're always looking for that moment of relaxation, of arrival, of achievement. But the Torah teaches us something that is beyond deep. is to understand that seeking achievement makes us depressed. Makes us frustrated. Because what happens when we get that achievement? We're never satisfied. The nature of a human being is never to be satisfied. It says, he who has 100 wants 101. He who has 101 wants 200. The Torah tells us. So, if we are looking for the achievement and don't have it, we're unsatisfied and frustrated. When we get the achievement, it don't, the, the satisfaction wears off. What do we have to do? Embrace the process. Sounds also cliche to live in the moment. The moment of the process. Where are you now? Famous when God introduces himself to Adam in the garden after his sin of the tree, he says, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you holding? He wasn't asking him, where are you? Like, are you hiding behind that bush over there? He's like saying, where are you in the process? I set forth a trajectory, God says. Where are you holding on that trajectory? Where do you find yourself on the line? Not that there's an achievement. That there's a line, there's a movement. And the more we embrace the process, the more we can be happy that we're in the process. Even if we haven't gotten there yet, even if it's a, the next challenge comes and it's harder than the previous challenge, even if when we get there, there's famine. We get to the place we thought we were going to be. God promised, God said, God commanded, and we get there, famine. It teaches us something very deep teaches us the process is the godly part. The God said is the main part. Did Avram do everything that God said? Absolutely. He was a chariot. He was a sports car. God was driving. Driving the sports car is the main thing. Not arriving at your destination. If you're only looking at your de- arriving at your destination, you're probably driving like a 1995 Nissan Sentra and you're just happy you got there. You're happy you arrived at this point. Like, oh, thank God my car made it. That's not who we are. We're not just people who made it, who just got there, who finally have like reached the mountaintop. That's not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is the getting there. God is the driver. I'm the car. I'm the Ferrari. I'm the sports car. I'm the way getting there. So Avraham's whole thing was, Lech lecha me'artzecha. Go out. Go, 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 go. Don't stop going. I'm telling you where to go. Don't stop going. Up. Oh, I'm telling you where to go. You got there. Now go somewhere else. Hey guys, what? That guy, go somewhere else. It's like, you act, you did what you're supposed to do. You traversed the land. You acquired it for you and your descendants. We made a covenant. We all agreed. It's on paper. It's on, it's on a stone. It's that sort of say. It's all set in the heavens in perpetuity. And now leave. Now, now embrace the process. Now the real work begins, sort of say. And he had to do it. He had to do it. And he went down to a place that's more, more, maybe more immoral than the first place. He goes down to Egypt. All horrible situations occur. But what does it teach us so, so deeply about the Holy Land? And that's like really the next section. Anybody have questions on this part? Not the question. Of Abraham? Full ownership of the land has not been completed. As much as Abraham 
traverse the land, north, east, south, and west, to make an acquisition of a land God gave him, we have not yet acquired the land. Even though King David united all the Jewish people in all the provinces of the land of Canaan, of the Canaanite regions, he only united 7 out of 10. He didn't complete the job. He completed the job as is requisite to build the Holy Temple, to institute Jewish courts of law, to make a monarchy, to make a government, to make a system of court systems of justice, agricultural laws, spiritual laws, all the laws of the sovereignty of the Holy Land of Israel. But the completion, completion only happens when Mashiach comes. I think it was two weeks ago, we took out the map and we showed you what the whole biblical Israel looks like. Oh my goodness, how big is this? It's like, if Jews going to Dubai now, maybe that's in the bottom part of the land. That's how big Israel really is. The biblical Mashiach Israel. And it's an amazing thing. Just think about it. I mean, the Jewish people, after Abraham, only seven generations later, less. Six generations, um, four. Four generations, but really the fifth generation of that, found themselves in Egypt as slaves soon thereafter. In the sixth gen- fifth to sixth generation. Then Moses was born in the seventh generation. Here you have this ragtag tribe in the desert going back to a land that was promised to them hundreds of years ago. And God says, this is the land that I gave to your four to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now this is your land again. Go back. The world would laugh. But guess what the world did at that time? You know, there's very little archaeological evidence of our descent from Egypt and then the coming out and going back to Israel. But I heard recently, there were not it's not a recent discovery, but I heard this recently, that there is a woman archaeologist from Israel and she discovered in Egypt 300 tablets. Tablets. And they were letters to the Egyptian pharaoh by nations in the land of Canaan, Canaan. And the letters are paying tribute and begging the Pharaoh to do something about this tribe in the desert making its way towards Eretz Canaan. I don't read Egyptian. I don't read it, but it's there. You can find it online. You can find the actual tablets. You find letters, 300 tweets. 300 letters to the Pharaoh saying there is this nation. It's not as they call nation. It calls them, um, what's the word it calls it? it? calls them foreigners, foreign tribe. It says this foreign tribe is coming and is making its way like rapid fire through the desert to our land. Do something. 300 letters. I don't know how long it takes to write a letter back then on a piece of stone, stone yeah. but 300 of them. And they exist to this day. We have them, the evidence. Who do you think this tribe of crazy monotheists who are going back to their land hundreds of years later are? Us, the Jews. Who's making wild... And what do you think the Egyptians did about it? I'm not touching these people. <laughs> we just, they just like gave us 10 plagues. The sea crashed on our whole army. We're not going after them. Egypt was a superpower of the world. So it was written in Hebrew. No, it was written in Egyptian. 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 It was letters from Canaanites. Canaanites were non-Jews, Arabs. You want to call them Arabs? Call them Arabs. Canaanites, they were a nation that occupied the land of the seven nations of what would become Israel. And the Canaanites, the land of Canaan. Israel was called Canaan before it was given to the Jewish people. So the land of Canaan wrote a letter to the land of Egypt saying, you have these people leaving, we got to do something to stop them. And the Egyptians said, we're done with them. Let them go. They left midday (laughs) a couple weeks ago. We don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. The sea crashed on our riders. And Egypt, we have no evidence Egypt even responded. And Egyptians were very good at preserving things, if you know what I mean. (laughs) We don't have any of that stuff. But they didn't preserve their destruction at the hands of God. 
but they did preserve the letters of tribute. The letters are like, please, great, oh, Pharaoh, we're sending this much diamonds to you. Please help us with these people. Nothing. We don't have anything else. It's amazing. What is it all predicated on? It's predicated on the mission, the job that Avraham began. That once God actually handed it over to the Jewish people, it was an inheritance eternally. So much so we could leave Egypt, we could leave slavery, and honestly believe with our whole hearts we're going back to that place that was promised to our great, 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 great grandfather. And that's our place. And for sure we conquered it eventually with Moses on the border, Joshua going in, King David solidifying the entire nation. But yet, guess what? This conquest is not something that just happened 3,000 years ago. It's more relevant today than it was back then. What is relevant? In earlier generations, you could answer this week's Parsha and the exodus of Egypt and say, spiritually, we can do it. Spiritually, I have to become more Israel, more spiritual, more Zion, more spiritual. Make here Israel. Make in my life more holiness. Build a shul, go to yeshiva, study more, pray more, meditate more. Make my life Israel. But because the last 3,000 years of Jewish service of God have paved the way for us, 2022 now, and the Rebbe said this in 1991 into 92, that certainly now the instruction to leave your land of turning the world spiritually into Israel is more prevalent now than ever before. God gave the land to us. He gave us the land of the seven nations, but now there's three more nations that it's up to us to conquer. How do you remember their name? It's always my favorite joke. The KKK. <laughs> remember to conquer the KKK, not the southern nutjobs. The KKK stands for, you have it here, Canaanites, Kenizites, and Kadmonites. The KKK, that's how you remember. The Kuf Kuf Kuf, if you want to call it that way. The Kuf Kuf Kuf. How do you remember it? You remember that these three nations were never conquered at one time by the Jewish people. They were never fully under the dominion of King David. But they remain as an inheritance for the generation, our generation, of the Arab Mashiach. And that these three lands will eventually be given to us. It did not take immediately in the time of Abraham. And at different times it came into our possession, but didn't, but never was part of the totality of Israel. But this is a clear prophecy for the future time. That even in times of Joshua, even in the times of David, even in the times of Ezra, the second temple, the seven Canaanite nations were conquered, but the three KK, the KKK was never conquered. There's a beautiful paragraph here on page 47, I'm not going to read it, but it describes the trajectory of history and the actual geography that these nations occupy and that we have completely occupied. But even Jewish people living in Israel now still have the same commandment. We have to understand that our generation is the culmination of all previous generations and that we, in the current relevance of our times, can take possession of the land even if we don't physically have the ability to do so right now, but rather the job of our generation right now is, is to understand that Jews of all generations can go to the land which God promised us by taking complete possession of all 10 lands. The first step to that, the Rebbe goes on to say, is by conquering our mindset. The seven nations that occupy Israel go on our heart go on our emotions. There's 10 spherot in Kabbalah. The lower seven are rooted in the heart and they are the emotional powers called the midas. The midas are emotions, our kindness, our discipline, our beauty, etc. The three higher powers are called Chabad. Chochma, Bina, Das. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The KKK nations represent the wisdom and understanding and knowledge. It's the last repair that needs to go on. And the Rebbe says it's an amazing power that we have that no other Jewish generation had. Can you imagine a rabbi going up to 
a professor of a Viennese university 400 years ago and trying to talk to him in philosophy or going to a Russian um, prince and talking to him and saying, you know, you should accept Torah as being uniquely Jewish and you should accept Israel as being uniquely Jewish. They'd kill him right away. Like literally would just murder that Russian rabbi, God forbid. Today, we have this amazing ability to transform, as they say in Yiddish, the Goyesha cup, <laughs> the non-Jewish headspace of the world. But it starts with us. When we transform our way of thinking into a Torah way of thinking and receiving Torah in our brains, literally, which eventually trickle down to our faculties, we are actually conquering these three last lands. We are actually transforming it. Most of us today were not born into a Torah observant background and, and environment. So our mindset needs to shift. We need a mindset shift. I'll never forget when I first became observant, my Rosh Yeshiva. They used to have a, a Yeshiva program for like newcomers to the Yeshiva like twice a year. And he, they had to ask the rabbi, a Q&A with the rabbi, which is very unique because the head of the yeshiva doesn't give Q&As ever, except twice a year. And inevitably, one of the young men would ask the question, Rabbi, I grew up with, like, you know, the way I grew up. Isn't taking the whole, like, Torah observance thing brainwashing? It's like I'm being brainwashed. I used to do this, now I have to do that. I ate this way, now I have to do that. Like, I feel like I'm being brainwashed. I have to, like adhere to a code of Jewish law. I have to believe in a God that I believe in, but I have to really do all this stuff. It's kind of like a cult. Mm -hmm. There's a Rebbe, there's a, there's a Jerusalem, there's a temple. It's kind of like brainwashing. It's kind of like cultish. So you know what the Rosh Hashim would always answer? Yeah, it is brainwashing. You wash your clothes, sometimes you also have to wash your brain. <laughs> Do you ever not wash your clothes? Of course not. Go around with dirty clothes? Don't go around with a dirty brain. You have to wash your brain also. It was his way of being silly, but a way of being serious. And that the way we think our mindset needs a shift. The way we consider every aspect of our lives needs a shift. A complete paradigm shift from the way we considered things prior. And every year this Parsha comes around. Lech Lecha. Abraham is told, go from the place of your birth and go to a place I'll show you. The place of your birth is the way our mind works now. The place I will show you is an Israel mindset. Is a Jewish mindset. Go out from the way. He was 75. <laughs> you say, oh, I'm too old. That's too old. Uh, uh. You're like, you know, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Never is going to be me. Who could? No, I'm from 75. It says, leave the place of your birth. It was still the place of his birth. He's still hanging on to, he's still baggage there. He's still issues. Go out and be new. Think differently. Open yourself up to different things. This is not an idolatrous society where you pray to the God and you bow to the idol and now you're one of, other, one of the cult. No, embrace a process by which you are living every moment with a divine energy. Every moment your mind is attuned to a higher power. This is the goal of Judaism. And the Rebbe says, just like the, the beginning is wedged in the end, and the end is wedged in the beginning, our generation, the last generation of Mashiach, living with Avraham this week, and living according to the Torah for the last 3,000 years, we have the final ability to take a full-on non-Jewish mentality and flip the script completely transform it and the world is ready for it the question is are we the world is ready to hear what the jews have to say i heard a great quote from dennis prager and he was speaking to um he was speaking to a uh, a non-jewish interviewer a christian woman interviewing him she says to him how come you're not christian yet he says that's the number one question i get all the time because i'm moral i'm whatever and he says you know let me tell you something He's like, 
I never believed. And he says, I'm proud to be Jewish. He goes on saying, I'm a Jew, a Jew, 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 Jew. I'm not like, I'm not into that religion. I'm not into that. But I admire you for who you are. Just leave me alone like who I am. And I'm, I'm good. But he says an amazing thing. I never believed that the world should find out, find out about the Torah from non-Jews. God gave the Jews the Torah. What are we been hiding for? And his question's valid. Well, I can tell you what we've been hiding from. We've been hiding from Nazis and Spanish Inquisitions and Polish pogroms and and pharaohs and 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 Hamans and and all these horrible dictators. That's what we've been hiding from. But now his question is more valid. Where does the world find out about the Bible from? Do they find out about it from non-Jews or Christians or Muslims? Or should they find out about it from us? And the Rebbe is saying in this Sikha very clearly, we have to flip our mindset and the world is ready to receive our new Torah mindset as Jews. All we have to do is provide it for them. And the Rebbe says in a peaceful way, in a loving way, in an educational way, not by force. These three nations that come from Mashiach, that, come, that we acquire when Mashiach comes, it's not by force. It's through peace and love. <laughs> but it's through mindset of Torah. It's the Torah is the dictating force, the mandating force for us, and becomes the mandating force for the world. And by flipping the narrative in our own brain, we flip it for a world that is ready to receive that newer Mashiach narrative in which these three nations become conquered. And it all begins with Avraham. It all begins with him. We have to be like Avraham. Go out from our land. Go out from our previous way. Embrace the process. Change our mind. Brainwash ourselves. Wash our brains a little bit. And, and put in Torah. And then shine that to the world. The world's ready for it. The world wants to know it from us. Previous generations, we couldn't provide it. We could, but they didn't let us. They weren't ready. Now, they're ready. And for sure, we're all ready for Mashiach. So, thanks for coming. Thank Have a wonderful Shabbos.